And they were all amazed at the greatness of God. While everyone was marveling at what Jesus did, he said to his disciples, Listen carefully to what I'm about to tell you. The Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men. But they did not understand what this meant. It was hidden from them, so what they did not grasp so that they did not grasp it, and they were afraid to ask him about it. An argument started among the disciples as to which of them would be the greatest. Jesus, knowing their thoughts, took a little child and made him stand beside him. Then he said to them, Whoever welcomes this little child in my name welcomes me, and whoever welcomes me welcomes the one who sent me. For it is the one who is least among you all who is the greatest. Master, said John, we saw someone driving out demons in your name, and we tried to stop him, because he is not, the one, he is not one of us. Do not stop him, Jesus said, for whoever is not against you is for you. Hello. Good morning. My name is Toby, and I'm kind of one of the part-time pastors here, and it's wonderful to see you. But before we get stuck into God's Word, let's pray. Father God, thank you so much for your word. Thank you that this morning you come here and you meet with us. And I pray that you'd allow these words to sink into our ears, as Jesus puts it. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Please follow on with your uh, Bible in your hand. You've got these nice little burgundy Bibles on your coffee tables around. Um, And you can feel free to use your phone, but I warn you, As a science teacher, I teach my students that distraction destroys. Uh, So if your phone's going to distract you from the word that we're going to be looking at, I've got it on the screen, so you don't need to worry about those. Can you imagine how good Jesus would have been at golf? And I'm not being silly here. Um, Genuinely, I don't play golf very well. I've played it with my father-in-law before. And it requires both power and understanding. The ability to, to hit and the understanding to understand every contour of the pitch. And I, at the end of uh, a game of golf, once took seven putts to get the ball into the hole. Okay, seven putts. Now, you'll see where I'm going with this in a minute. I've got seven putts for you today, but it's a play on words because Jesus puts it best. And we're going to look at the way that Jesus puts it. You'll see. We're going to look at the way that Jesus puts it in this passage. When I was first given this passage to preach, I genuinely thought that the the passages in here were about as organized as my teenage bedroom. I was like, what is going on? This one doesn't seem to fit to this one, this one. And the great privilege of being able to prepare for this is I was able to see that these things have been put together so deliberately. And it shows us something beautiful about Jesus that speaks to us here this morning. And I think it divides pretty neatly into three parts, which is convenient. Uh, And those three parts we're going to look at today is the way that Jesus puts it, then we're going to look at the way that people put it, and then we're going to look at the way that Christians are to put it. Let's have a look. So look at the way that Jesus puts it here. So we've been looking at Luke for some time. We're about three quarters of the way through his kind of what people call his dramatic actions, his miracles. People are amazed. We learned yesterday, not yesterday, last week, about Jesus healing the boy who was, had spirits. It was very dramatic. It's 
So we're about three quarters of the way through those sort of miracles as recorded in Luke. Uh, And we can see that everybody is amazed at the greatness of God. Now, you can imagine they're riding high on a wave. You've seen, in it, to sort of stretch that sporting analogy a little bit, you'd kind of expect after that goal scored, they'd be running around with their T-shirts over their head, like super excited about this. But Jesus stops. He stops them. They're all amazed at the greatness of God. This is a good thing. But while everyone was marveling at all that Jesus did, Jesus is not marveling at himself. He's drawing his disciples into himself. And we can see here that it says, while everyone was marveling at all that Jesus uh, did, he said to his disciples, listen carefully to what I'm about to tell you. Now, I used a phrase in the prayer earlier, which is let this sink into your ears, which was kind of the literal words that Jesus said, let these words sink into your ears. Now, in the Greek, there's a real emphasis on the word you. Now, I think in our individualistic culture, we can often make things about ourselves far too much, which we're going to see in a little bit, was also a problem back then. But when we say here, I think this is absolutely key for all of us here. We've got to allow these to sink into our individual hearts. This means something to us here this morning. Each one of us, in different ways, this is really, really relevant. Listen carefully to what I'm about to tell you. And he goes on and he says, Um, the Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men. Now, this might seem like a a little bit of a change of tone. They've just seen someone healed after numerous other people have been healed. These great things are happening. The kingdom's moving. The disciples are so excited to see what's going to happen. And he tells them that the Son of Man is going to be delivered into the the hands of men. What does this mean? Well, the Son of Man is a reference to the book of Daniel, um, and Jesus uses it lots to describe himself. Um, And in the book of Daniel, the Son of Man is using to describe Jesus coming again, and there's very much a battle between good and evil going on there at this time. So Jesus is alluding to there being, he's going to be this person who's part of this big battle, um, and he, but this battle is going to be an interest one. He's going to be delivered into the hands of men. The Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men. So, what does this actually mean? Well, when we see this, the Son of Man is Jesus, being delivered into the hands of men. Now, pretty shortly after this time, Jesus is handed over, first of all, by his friend, Jesus, Judas, And then from Judas into the hands of the palace guard later on. The hands of the religious elite in the high priest. The hands of the political elite with Pontius Pilate. The hands of the royalty with Herod. And finally, into the hands of the brutal Roman guards, who were very efficient at their job of executing. The Son of Man was put into the hands of men and was judged. And this is the whole trajectory of this book in your hands. The whole trajectory of this has been moving to the glory of Jesus at the cross, where he is put, Jesus puts others first. He puts you first. He puts me first. 
because he puts himself through judgment for us. We will one day come before God at the end of time, and if we trust in Jesus, he was put through that judgment for us. So, I told you it took me seven putts to put the, the ball in the hole. Well, my first put is that Jesus put others first, and he did this by putting himself through judgment for us. Now, I would love Jesus to have taken those putts for me. But here we see that Jesus does it for us in reality, where it matters, not on the golf course, but instead by putting himself through judgment for us. The way people put it, let's look at this second sort of chunk. So this is just the next bit along. I've not edited anything. This is just the second part of our passage here. The way people put it. But they did not understand what this meant. It was hidden from them, so they did not grasp it. And they were afraid to ask him about it. An argument started among the disciples as to which of them would be the greatest. So they did not understand this. Now, this is not uncommon. We're the same. Jesus has patience for people who don't understand. There's time. But it's interesting. They didn't understand what this meant. Jesus had shown mercy to people. He was kind. He, he describes himself as humble and lowly. But here we see that they don't understand what this meant, but they don't ask him. That's interesting why. Um, and we say it was hidden from them. Now, for something to be hidden, often I think of it being blocked by something else. Um, you know, maybe you're looking for your keys and it's behind the couch or whatever. Okay, it's hidden by something else. We all know that story. So it's hidden from them. Now, I think that there's lots of different ways of looking at this, but they didn't grasp it. They didn't take hold of the fact that Jesus was going, was the Son of Man who was going to be put into the hands of men. They didn't like this. They knew enough about it that they weren't going to ask any more questions. Um, they were afraid to ask Jesus about it. Which is a bit, but they're hanging out with him for several years. It's a big deal what he's just said. You kind of would wonder why they wouldn't have asked that. And I wonder if it's this. Okay, I think the way that people put it is I think we put our head in the sand when we hear things we don't like. Now, why do I, why do I say this? Why do I think they didn't like it? They're afraid to ask. We've got to realize that we are products of our culture in a really, really significant way. So as Brits, often things that have contributed to um, big political swings are about the way we see ourselves as Brits, plucky Brits, standing up against the, the bad guys on the other side of the channel, that sort of thing. And without getting too political, it does affect the way we think. And the culture that the disciples found themselves in, this sort of um, first century uh, Israel, was one in which they were looking for a Messiah to deliver them from the powers that were oppressing them. And they were convinced that the main power that was oppressing them were the Romans, these Romans that were causing all these problems. And in their mind, their cultural mind, much like we actually as Brits often, those of us who are here, have our different cultural heritages in our mind, which influences the way we look at the world, be that our family of origin, be that our nationality. These disciples here have got something which we may not actually be 100% familiar with. We obviously are aware that there's the Old Testament, the story of uh, you know, the people of Israel. We'd be fairly familiar with this. But actually for these disciples, there was a, quite an important part of their history that we often gloss over and miss, which were the Maccabees, right? So the Maccabees were basically 150 years before this. The Maccabeans 
there was these Greek oppressors, or these, they, they were called the Seleucids, and they were basically oppressing the Jews. And this guy um, called Maccabees comes up, and he leads a revolution, long story short, and kicks them out. They're looking for this. They want power. They want to see power displayed. They're seeing power displayed in a slightly strange way in that he's healing loads of people, but it's power nonetheless. They're really on board with this power. And they want to see, they want to see this Romans out, Israel back in. I wonder whether they're afraid to ask because they can see that this is a humble demonstration of power. They can see that Jesus is saying that the Son of Man is going to be put into the hands of men. That's not glorious. That's not powerful. That's not like what they are used to, what they're culturally ready for. They want revolution. We see that coming later. And they're afraid to ask. And I think they put their head in their sands. And I wonder if we do that too, insofar as I think that the way that people, the way that we work, is that we kind of see that Jesus is saying these things which are hard to grasp, that he's died for our sins, that he saves us from judgment, and we kind of, people put their head in the sand about it. They just don't want to hear it because it doesn't sound like the kind of power that they want. It, and ultimately, it requires this. We, we put ourselves first. Jesus, and we can see this coming in a minute, Jesus, as we saw before, puts others first, right? Now, how do the disciples then put ourselves first? We see an argument starts among the disciples as to which of them would be the greatest. Now, I don't know Maybe for you, maybe it's different for me, but I just think that sounds a bit crass. Everyone's saying, well, I'm the greatest. No, 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 I'm the greatest. Now, I'm not sure. We're not told exactly how that conversation goes, but I'm pretty sure we all do it in different ways. Um, let me give you some examples. Perhaps it might be, uh, it might be, might be as crass as, for example, uh, Muhammad Ali, I am the greatest okay, um, boxer in the world. Okay, we see that, that is something. But how do we do it? Maybe it's that we have the greatest, I don't know, house. Or maybe it's that I've got a greater house than him. Or perhaps it's um, we, go to, we, we, we go on Facebook, right? And we see people who started in the same time as us who have got more stuff or have a better job or have happier relationships. And we think we feel like we are not the greatest, so we're kind of arguing with ourselves as to whether they're greater or we're greater. Um, this is my rendering of it. And I think that's here. Let's take it face value. Let's say they're arguing over which disciple is the greatest. Essentially, they're putting themselves first. They're, putting, they're kind of arguing over who should take that top seat. Um, who is the greatest? We put ourselves first. And actually, we hear that in the modern language, don't we? We say it all, hear it all the time. We say, put yourself first. Okay. Self-care is not a bad thing. By the way, like in the Ten Commandments, we have the Sabbath, which is about rest and self-care. So I'm not saying don't self-care. What I'm saying is it's so ingrained in our culture to put ourselves first. Something's reasonable as long as we put ourselves first. Now, why is this? Well, I think it's because we put up with insecurity. So, we argue, you notice this when you meet people who are very insecure, oftentimes they will want to tell you about all that they've done, right? That I do this, or I've done this, or I'm, I used to do it all the time, I'd say I'm a head of year, uh, or I'm, I'm an assistant head teacher, don't you know? Not just that I'm a teacher, I would do it all the time because I was insecure. And God really humbled me, and I'm still insecure in different ways, but I am happy to say now I'm just a humble teacher. Uh, I'm not an assistant head teacher or anything like that, and I'm not. Um, 
But it was actually because I wanted, I was basing my security on whether I was the greatest. And I wonder if here, these people are arguing over who's the greatest because they don't realize how loved they are because they don't understand that first bit here. Um, if we go back, that the Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men because he's putting himself through judgment for us. We're not going to be judged. We don't have to be the greatest because Jesus already is. Isn't that amazing? In other churches, I'd get an amen. But let's... Um, that's going to lead into the next point. Um, I think we put up with insecurity. So you can see we've got three putts in this bit. Okay, So we put our head in the sands as people. We put ourselves first. We put up with insecurity. And I've got one for the, uh, the parents in here in a minute, just as an encouragement, or anyone, to be honest, that deals with children. Because let's look at the way that Christians are to put it. Um, so on the next bit now, Verses 47 onwards, Jesus, knowing their thoughts, took a little child and had him stand beside him. Then he said to them, whoever welcomes this little child in my name welcomes me, and whoever welcomes the one who sent me. For it is the one who is least among you all who is the greatest. Let's just start with that bit. So Jesus, being who he is, understands the hearts of these people. And in Mark, which is kind of like a parallel account of what's going on, it, like he actually sort of questions them a little bit on this. But Jesus, knowing their thoughts, um, took a child. Now, in our culture, we actually quite esteem children. Um, but in this sort of ancient cultures, little children were really the bottom of the rung. And we'll look at why that is in a minute. Um, why that's not the case so much anymore. Um, but we see, we see a child, and I think that the word child is chosen here because children don't give you anything back much. Um, those of you who have had um, nappy explosions and have had to deal with those this morning or have been up late at night, children are great, they look pretty, but they don't actually give a great deal back initially. Um, <laughs> and I think the child is noted because we're, uh, we're told here um, Whoever comes, um, he says, whoever welcomes this little child in my name welcomes me. I wonder if the, this here is put here because we're welcoming somebody who, to be honest, doesn't give you a whole lot back. It's very easy to be welcoming to, um, in our school, our head loves to invite very important people into school. And it's very easy to roll out the red carpet for somebody who offers you something. But I think here... I know that within the ancient cultures that we, these guys were finding themselves, the children were at the bottom of the rung. Let me tell you, like that Greek empire I was telling you about, the Seleucids, they were from Alexander the Great was the guy who basically planted those in ancient Greek culture. Like they, I don't want to go into it in too much detail because I don't want to sour it, but they, they viewed children as objects of lust. I'm not going to lie, sometimes. That was something which happened within Greek culture. So you've got to see, this is, what, this is the culture in which we're talking about. Romans were famous for, if they didn't want their children, they'd just leave them out. Leave them out in the, in the gutter. If they didn't want their children, you just leave them out. They're kind of disposable. They were the bottom of society. That's what I'm trying to basically emphasize to you, that within these cultures, the cultural mix that these Israelites were growing up in, like, the Jewish culture was quite different. I want to be clear on that. But the kind of surrounding cultures so viewed children as disposable, dispensable, usable. Bottom of the rung. The least powerful. In fact, the very famous book out at the moment, well worth reading, it's actually written by a non-Christian, it's called Dominion, and it looks at how bizarre 
Christian culture is when you compare it to any other culture around the world. Because actually, it esteems the lowly. It esteems the humble. It doesn't use power in, in manipulative ways in its essence, in its core. That's not to say that Christians haven't done dreadful things. I'm not saying that. But I'm saying the actual core message of Jesus is so countercultural. It's so revolutionary that this little child really was viewed as kind of like someone who can give you nothing. They are low. And I would like to just point out, because it's easy to just say how terrible everything is. Things are getting worse, everything like this. The kind of pastoral care that a lot of the kids at my school get is really good. If, like, if, there's one, if, if, if they seem to be under threat in any way, we, there is really actually some really tight safeguarding stuff around children in school today. That's a good thing. That didn't happen by accident, by the way. That, there's some really good um, feedback protocol in this country, but that's not the case all over the world. Actually, if you look back at history, you'll find that it's actually Christians who have led the way in looking after people like children. Whether you go to the Benedictine monks, starting with their hospitals and their hospitality. Whether you look at, um, go back to Bernardo's, okay? Uh, you've heard of Bernardo's charity, right? It started by a guy who loved Jesus, knew that Jesus had put himself, him first so he could put others first. And I'm choosing examples specifically there from different traditions to the one that this one finds its absolute most like, straightforward route on. There's a guy called John Bosco, who's a, who was a Catholic guy. Started up loads of orphanages, not so he could earn a place in the kingdom, but because he knew he had a place in the kingdom, so he could love other people. So what we see here is Jesus is choosing a child. Whoever welcomes this little child in my name welcomes me. Whoever welcomes me welcomes the one who sent me. Um, when I was footloose and fancy free, I uh, went and cycled uh, through France, right? And basically, I got welcomed into the home of this French couple who didn't know me from Adam all because they knew my dad. I got treated like a king. Uh, there they cooked like the best sort of food available and they looked after me, gave me a bed. They even like drove me miles afterwards and I have to cycle as far. Okay, they were amazing. Why? Because they loved my dad, basically. They didn't know me. I was of no value to them. But do you see how, whilst the child doesn't offer them much, we are welcoming Jesus here because that little child is viewed as a child. So, you're welcoming the little child. So clearly, that child has some connection to Jesus, and Jesus has a connection to the Father here. Pretty, it's a beautiful lineage coming here. So for the one, for it is the one who is least among you who is the greatest. Now, it's funny, isn't it? doesn't say, don't try and be the greatest. I think that's a very British thing. You're just humble. Who'd want to be the greatest? No, 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 no. You want to be in the middle. You want mediocrity. It's kind of like that's optimum and don't shout about it. As long as you've got enough to have a nice extension and you've got a car that works, uh, those things are optimum. Don't try and be the greatest. But he doesn't say don't be the greatest. He says genuinely, the one who is least among you is the greatest. Um, and there's something really beautiful here. And I want to just tell you one more story I only realized recently. Um, my mum is a beautiful, beautiful woman. She's, she's amazing. Uh, and she genuinely, anyone who knows her kind of knows that she's just really kind without expecting anything back. Um, and I realized recently, she gave us a great childhood. Right? I was really, really fortunate. I know not everybody had that, but I want to just say that that was a real blessing. Um, I couldn't have asked her about her mum. She, uh, she was a shop worker for a lot of the time um, growing up uh, and made lots of space for us. Um, but she looks back on her life 
got to bear in mind now that she's sort of in her sort of, she'd hate me for saying this, uh, middle years. Um, she grew up in the 1980s under the sort of second wave feminism. Uh, so first wave, some, some great stuff there with regard to political emancipation, great like that. Second wave feminism, we're talking about kind of women in the workplace. Again, some great stuff there. I've worked under some amazing female head teachers. Right? I'm not knocking that at all. But my mum grew up in that kind of mix where you had to have a career and be a mum and be at the top of your career and be a mum at the same time. And she, I didn't realize this. She only told me this the other day. She feels this kind of sense of like she didn't do enough, that she didn't have a career and was an amazing mum because she put others first. I just want to say to you guys that if, that's, if there's any of you in here feel any, any way like this, what Jesus is saying is that the greatest among us are the ones um, who is least. Um, and who puts the children first. Now, I, I don't want, this is not about parenting arrangements. I'm not saying that. I'm just saying about the love that my mum showed us. She put us first. She was a shop worker. And in my mind, she's amongst the greatest. Jesus is, but, but she is because she embodies a lot of that. Um, so, the way that Christians are to put it, okay? Put the needs of those like children first. So what do we mean by children now? It's all very nice, isn't it? We, we see children being cute. Okay, some of us have kids. Some of us wish we had kids. Um, so what does it mean to put the needs of children first? Well, I think that if we're talking about it as it was intended, the people like children are the ones who cannot give us anything. The person who's actually a bit annoying uh, in the workplace that honestly doesn't really get that much attention from our from our people. I can think of someone. Um, someone who's not going to necessarily get you uh, further on in your career. Uh, maybe it's that mum at Mums and Toddlers who, so it's not the kid, it's the mum, uh, but who is not like you uh, in different ways. Maybe, I don't know, maybe it's uh, in a student remit um, putting someone else first. Maybe um, actually helping someone with some study just because even though they're not going to give you anything back. Um, I think as Christians, we're called to do this, and this is a really, really powerful witness. Um, a really, really powerful witness. Um, now, so how else are Christians supposed to put it? 49 here. Master said, John, we saw someone driving out demons in your name. We tried to stop him because he is not one of us. Do not stop him, Jesus said. For whoever is not against you is for you. Um, this guy was probably not one of the immediate disciples. Well, in fact, he certainly wasn't one of the disciples. Um, but clearly had faith in Jesus because he was doing good stuff. He was driving out demons. Now, we as in Western culture often view this whole demon thing as, well, that's probably just a mental health problem. Well, actually, I don't buy that. Um, we know that within our culture, we can go too far one way and just say that nothing is spiritual. Uh, and therefore, I think actually the devil has one up on us uh, because there is a reality to the spiritual dimension. Um, and similarly, in other cultures where they make everything is spiritual, actually then the superstition of that around it gains too much power. And they're both tactics of the devil. But all we see here is that he's driving the devil. He's doing good things. He's serving other people. He's putting other people first, and he's doing it in the name of Jesus. So he seems to be a Christian, doing good stuff in the name of Jesus. And um, do not stop him, Jesus said, for whoever is not against you is for you. He's not part of their tribe. He's not one of the kind of like their in-group, a PLU as we used to call it, uh, people like us. Um, but in the name of Jesus, he's doing good stuff. Um, when we as a sort of founding team here about I don't know, just, just under a decade ago, it was about a decade ago, wasn't it now? It was quick. 
were looking to plant this church. There wasn't much of a visible witness in this area in any way. And we were praying, God, we want to see a church planted in here. Church planting is littered with church planting failures. We knew that that might not work. Um, but we decided we'd plant this church. Um, and we wanted to see an explosion of people glorifying Jesus in this area. Oh, you guys are making up a good crowd for this morning, but it's not quite what I had in mind, right? I wanted to see, I wanted to see, we've got, we got tens of thousands of people here. So I wanted 10 years. I, wanted, I, was the, I was the optimist, right, on the team. I wanted to see loads. And we'd go around, we'd walk around the area, and we'd pray for the area, and we'd say, Lord, we want to see these people come to know Jesus. Uh, and actually, since that time, I think it's fair to say that within about 300 yards of where we're stood here now, uh, there are actually, not just this church has been planted, but there's essentially two other churches doing great things who love people um, and do say, I've been there, I've just been come back off sabbatical. If I, you haven't seen me, it's not that I've been blanking you, it's that I've been around and about visiting other churches. Um, that genuinely confessing their sins, putting their faith in Jesus, and loving one another. There's at least three churches since we planted that. I count one of them as being kind of like a revitalization, but essentially three different congregations since then. Now, it's easy for us to look around and go, this isn't the start of the revolution, is it? Okay, <laughs> you look great, but um, it, it, we're pretty small in number. But actually, there's, there's a good few other congregations around here. And fundamentally, in the name of Jesus, they're loving people. They're putting other people first. Isn't that amazing? So I, I know I've done this. It's easy to put other Christians down because they don't quite agree with me on every point. And let's be clear, if people are not, if they're saying that you can be saved without putting your faith in Jesus, then they're not, that's not Christianity. So that we do have to have some hard and fast lines. But there's plenty of people who fall this side of the, that line who, quite honestly, we draw the line here and say, mm, okay, but probably not. Uh, but if they are putting their faith in Jesus and they are showing the fruits of the Spirit, Love, joy, peace, and you can remember the rest of them. Um, then, then actually, they're Christians. And we're not to put them down. In fact, we're to be encouraged that there are witnesses going on in our area that we don't even know about. We've got planting in our DNA, folks. And, um, but, and it's easy to just think, well, it's only our project that's going to work out. But we've got loads of other projects. There's loads of other projects in the city where God is working. I just want us to pray for them too, as well as our own, not to become too parochial. Um, let's remember, this is the way Christians are to put it. You can put other people first. This, this week coming, you can put other people first because you were put first. You are utterly loved. You don't need to prove yourself at all. Jesus puts it best. You can see the, the golfists, as I call them, in the room chuckling. Okay? So let's remember. Okay? There's seven putts in here. Okay? Um, Jesus, first of all, Jesus puts it best. But then we've got Jesus puts others first by putting himself through judgment for us. The way that we often do it is we put our heads in the sand when we hear things we don't like much as the disciples did. We put ourselves first. We put up with insecurity not realizing that we're completely freed. We put the needs, but we're called to put the needs of those who are like children first and not to put other children down, okay? So I call us this morning to follow 
Jesus and his word. Now, we're going to take communion in a minute with the, when the kids are back down. And I just wanted us to remember this. If you know, if you feel convicted of anything in your heart this morning, when we come to celebrate this, we can enjoy this because Jesus took that putt for me at the end of that golf course. The, the end of time, that, 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 if you imagine me on the final green of life, okay, like the judgment hole, okay, taking that putt, okay, it wasn't, it's not me taking that putt. Jesus takes that putt for us, okay? And he takes the judgment. He puts us first by putting himself through judgment for us. If that's not true for you this morning, come and speak to one of us. We'd love to pray with you. Um, let's pray. Father God, thank you for your word. I pray one more time, Lord. Please let this sink into our ears. Amen.